This is a reading from Galatians, chapter 2, verses 11 to 21. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood self-condemned. For until certain people came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But after they came, he drew back and kept himself separate for fear of the circumcision faction. And the other Jews joined him in this hypocrisy, so that even Barnabas was led astray by the hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not acting consistently with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is justified not by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And we have come to believe in Christ Jesus, so that we might be justified by faith in Christ, and not by doing the works of the law, because no one will be justified by the works of the law. But if in our effort to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have been found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not, but if I build up again the very things that I once tore down, then I demonstrate that I am a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if justification comes through the law, then Christ died for nothing. Um, a creaky chair, so it's going to probably be picked up on the recording. So this is the third of a series that seems to have been going on for about six months <laughs> on Galatians. <clears throat> so let's just begin with a wee bit of a recap of what we've covered in the last two instalments. So Galatians is a highly charged document. It addresses this raging conflict that's taking place in the churches of uh, Galatia over the necessity of circumcision and Torah observance for Gentile believers. The conflict was stirred up by Jewish Christian visitors from Jerusalem, uh, so their fellow Christians of Paul's, who were determined to undermine Paul's radical approach to Gentile inclusion in the Messianic community. And so the first thing that Paul has to do in response to this, uh, this conflict and this is what we talked about last time, is he has to explain and reassert his own apostolic credentials because his opponents are attacking the messenger as well as the message. So he has to clarify that he really does have this, um, this status as an appointed apostle. So he, he devotes a lot of space uh, in chapter 1, beginning of chapter 2, to retelling his own story from the Damascus Road event up to this meeting 14 or 17 years later, it's quite hard to work out just quite, 
uh, how he's making his, um, you know, his sort of chronology work. But between 14 and 17 years later, this meeting he had with what I'd be calling the big three in Jerusalem, James, uh, Peter and John, who were the most uh, influential apostles in the church. And he claims that at that meeting, uh, they endorsed the way that he was conducting his outreach to the Gentiles and the basis on which he was doing it. The next story that Paul tells is the one we just had read to us, which is of an incident in Antioch, sort of like a famous five-story book, The Incident in Antioch, uh, where Paul had this heated confrontation with Peter over the way that he was conducting himself in this multi-ethnic church. And I think the reason why Paul recounts this story uh, in his letter to the Galatians and in his response to the, the troubles in Galatia is that this episode sort of brings to the surface the, the theological principles that he feels are at stake uh, in the debate that's taking place uh, in Galatia over circumcision. And as he sort of, and we'll get to this in a moment, as he unpacks these principles, he sets up the stark antithesis between being justified by faith in Christ and being justified by works of the law. So justification by faith has often been viewed as the kind of the essence of Paul's understanding of the gospel. Whether it is or not is a matter of debate, but it's usually seen as at the very heart of the way that Paul understands the Christian message. But what does it actually mean? What is justification? Uh, Why is it by faith? And what does faith mean anyway? And what are works of the law? And why does Paul set up this stark opposition between works of the law and justification by faith. This came up in our first circle um, in the series. Why just not accept that these are complementary commitments? Why do you see them as sort of cancelling each other out? So those are really, really big and really complicated and really profound questions to ask. They've long been debated by theologians and Pauline scholars. They lay at the heart of the 16th century Reformation and they are just as vigorously debated, at least amongst the, the experts today, as they have been. So, so in so, some trepidation to try and bite all that off uh, in 30 minutes. But I'm going to do it as well. <coughs> anyway, so the text that Peter just read falls into two halves. The first half, uh, from verses 11 to 14, is where Paul recounts this bitter confrontation with Peter. This is Peter. Right, the prince of the apostles, the rock on which the church was founded, according to Jesus. This bitter confrontation Paul had with them of what he believed was Peter's rank hypocrisy. And then the second half of the text, which is verses 15 to the end, he unpacks the, the theological grounds on which he resisted Peter and the other Jews who joined him in this hypocrisy, to use Paul's words. And it's not, it's not clear in the second half whether Paul is kind of repeating what he said to Peter in Antioch. He's sort of, this is what I said to Peter, and I'm just, I'm just quoting it now. Or whether he's offering a kind of retrospective commentary on it 
for the sake of the Galatians. He tells the story and then he kind of gives a, a commentary on it uh, for the first time for his, for his own readers because they are being swayed by similar pressures that Peter felt uh, in, in Antioch. I think the answer is both. I think Paul begins by summarising what he said to Peter in this you know, toe-to-toe public confrontation with him. And then he slides into uh, how these issues engage with the, with the churches of Galatia. And the move from one audience, as Peter and Barnabas and the other Jews in Antioch, to his own audience of the, of the Galatian readers... The transition from one to the other is impossibly vague. I mean, you can't, you can't sort of divide it up very clearly and deliberately vague because for Paul, there's exactly the same problem in both cases. In both cases, Paul thought his opponents were failing to uphold the truth of the gospel. And in both cases, Paul thought the meaning of justification by faith is at stake. And needs to be reasserted. It's just worth noting one interesting or one apparent difference between the Antioch incident and the Galatian troubles. In Antioch, the dispute with Peter centered on the question of eating food with Gentile believers. In Galatia, the main issue that Paul talks about is the circumcision of Gentile believers. So it sounds like these are two different issues, but they're not two different issues at all. Uh, the difference is only apparent, because the real issue in both cases is the role of Torah observance, the observance of the Mosaic law, within the Gentile Christian community. Paul's opponents in Galatia uh, wanted to get the Gentiles to submit to circumcision, but that was obviously only the first part of their agenda uh, because of what circumcision actually meant for Jews. They also wanted to impose uh, on the Gentile community the full requirements of the law, especially dietary laws and the observance of the Sabbath and festival observance plus all the rest of the 613 commandments that made up the Torah. So it appears that he's talking about two different things, but he's actually talking about the same issue. The issue is what role does the observance of the Torah play in the Gentile Christian community? So let's, let's begin then with the story at uh, Antioch. The episode turns on the question of whether Jewish and non-Jewish believers should share food together at the common table. Observant Jews steadfastly avoided eating with Gentiles in their homes for fear of eating unclean food, unkosher food, and especially avoiding the possibility that this food had been dedicated to idols. And this is a, you know, this is a major issue uh, in 1 Corinthians, about food offered to idols. So because of the danger, if a Jew sat down at meal with a Gentile, that he'd end up bre- breaching the law, perhaps even without realising it. 
meant that they just steadfastly avoided that kind of intimate contact. It was a deeply ingrained prohibition and a deeply ingrained suspicion. And the thought of breaching it, I think, would have produced an almost visceral reaction of revulsion uh, in a sincere uh, Jewish believer, a Jewish um, member of the Jewish community. This is evident in the really long story. I mean, the story of Cornelius in Acts 10 and 11 is really long. It goes on and on and on. And the length of the story is because this is something that, um, that Luke thinks is a really important episode. So it's evident in this long story where God prepares Peter in advance for visiting the home of the Gentile centurion Cornelius. So, you know the story. One afternoon in prayer, uh, Peter uh, says he falls into a trance and he has this bizarre nightmare of this big sheep coming down out of heaven full of both clean and unclean animals. Now, in Jewish purity laws, when you had the mixture of clean and unclean, the contamination went one way. So the unclean animals polluted the clean animals and so everything was unclean. Then the voice from heaven tells Peter to rise, kill, and eat from this contaminated offering available on the tablecloth, to which Peter recoils in horror. He says, by no means, Lord, I have never eaten anything that is profane or unclean. So three times, you know, with Peter, it always comes in threes since Gethsemane, uh, since yeah, the uh, Denial. Three times the voice says to Peter, What God has made clean, you must not call unclean. What God has made clean, you must not call unclean. Then Peter wakes up and there's a knock on the door. And it's this delegation from, uh, from Cornelius' household saying, Would you please come to Caesarea and meet with Cornelius? And so uh, he says, well, come and stay the night. The next day they go and he goes to the home of Cornelius. And he says <clears throat> to him, he says, you yourselves know that it is unlawful for a Jew to associate or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone profane or, or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. Now, may I ask why you sent for me? <laughs> I'm here. Why? Uh, why have I come? And so the story goes on. Peter preaches to Cornelius. He witnesses the outpouring of the Spirit on Cornelius and his household. He baptizes him in water. And then we're told he lodges with him for several days. Uh, presumably he wasn't fasting. But when he returns to, to Jerusalem, he's sternly rebuked by his fellow Christians who say, quote, why did you go to uncircumcised men and eat with them? And Peter has to retell the story about the third time the story is told. So you get a, you get a feeling for the kind of this gut level reaction against the possibility of eating with uncircumcised uh, Gentiles. And so Peter has this, you know, bizarre experience, powerful experience, as though. He has to be jolted out of his, uh, of his existing mindset. It really has to be shaken out of him. 
Uh, and thereafter, to use Paul's words in Galatians, though a Jew, he now lived like a Gentile, at least with respect to food. He was now prepared to live like a Gentile and eat with whatever um, who, who he was amongst. So that's the backstory. But then in Antioch, at the insistence of certain people from James, Peter suddenly backtracks and he withdraws from eating with Gentile believers, which precluded him sharing the Lord's Supper with them because the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, was invariably celebrated in the context of a common meal for hundreds of years. It was celebrated at the meal table, which was a kind of catastrophic breach of fellowship that Peter suddenly displayed. These men or these people from James were, or the circumcision faction they're called in the text, were, we talked about this last time, were from the ultra-conservative faction in the Jerusalem church who opposed Paul's law-free Gentile mission. And he's just talked in the previous paragraph about, um, about their opposition to him when he arrived in Jerusalem. They claimed the support of James, who was by now the leading apostle in the Jerusalem church. And he was a man who was widely revered, even by his enemies, for his piety and his devotion to the law. He was known as James the Just, James the Righteous. And that really only meant one thing. He was absolutely um, stellar in his dedication to observing the law. So that was their hero. They arrived in Antioch, for whatever reason, and they launched this blistering attack on the liberal fraternizing that was taking place at table between Jews and Gentiles. And clearly they said this must stop immediately. The arguments they used... <clears throat> must have been highly persuasive because Paul says, and you can feel the shock and pain in his voice, Paul says, even Barnabas, even Barnabas, his closest companion, even Barnabas was led astray along with Peter and the other Jews in the church by what he claims was hypocrisy. Why were they persuaded by this delegation, what caused Peter to, to um, take the steps that he did? Well, we, we, we got to use a bit of creative imagination here, but um, Paul says in our text that Peter was afraid of the delegation. It was fear of the men from James. And presumably what he was afraid of was the trouble that they were could stir up back in Jerusalem. If they reported back to the, the church in Jerusalem that other Jews who followed the Messiah were actually being encouraged to break the law. He was probably also afraid of the impact that kind of gossip, if you like, would have on his own outreach to the Gentile world, to the Jewish world. Because remember how in the previous um, paragraphs, how there's this decision to sort of split the mission field between Paul and Peter. 
and Peter was given charge of the uh, of the outreach to Jews, and Paul was acknowledged as the leader in the outreach to the Gentiles. And Peter probably thought this is really going to spook the horses if this kind of uh, story gets out that we are somehow encouraging Jewish uh, believers in the Messiah to break to break the law. He was probably also afraid of the impact that this report could have on the ever-vulnerable church in Jerusalem, you know, the poor in Jerusalem. Uh, it could easily intensify the pressure on them from the religious authorities uh, back in Jerusalem. And I think these fears that Peter had were totally justified because years later, when Paul himself arrived in Jerusalem, this is in Acts 21, the elders of the church gathered with Paul and they warned Paul of exactly this kind of problem. They said, they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands of believers there are among the Jews and they're all zealous for the law. They have been told about you that you teach all the Jews living among the Gentiles to forsake Moses and that you tell them not to circumcise their children or observe the customs. What then is to be done? This is dangerous. And the story goes on, Paul decided to take the Nazarite vow. But a week later, a mob in the streets of Jerusalem attacked Paul and attempt to kill him. And they cry out, fellow Israelites. And they say, he is, quote, teaching everyone everywhere against our people, our law, and our temple. So if that's the context in which these men from James turned up in Antioch, Peter probably thought caution is the best policy. And he decided for the sake of appearances and for the sake of the greater good to cancel existing policy in Antioch. But Paul was incensed. Paul was absolutely livid about this because he accused Peter, he says, before them all, this was a really public confrontation, of hypocrisy. And the word literally means play-acting. It comes from, it's a theatrical metaphor. It's like an act of following a script. He accused Peter of hypocrisy, play-acting. On what grounds? Because, quote, he was not acting consistently with the truth of the gospel. He was not, if you like, following the plot line of the gospel. He was like an actor who was following somebody else's narrative. He was being inconsistent, I think, from Paul's perspective, in at least these three ways. First, he was failing to be true to his own convictions. He was being disingenuous about what he really believed. There was an integrity issue involved. Paul says he stood self-condemned. If you, though a Jew, lived like a Gentile and not like a Jew with respect to dietary laws, how can you compel the Gentiles to live like the Jews? That's, that's not being straightforward. That's not being honest. 
As well as that, he was failing to model the welcoming embrace of Christ for the Gentiles, which he had previously witnessed so powerfully with Cornelius. Instead, he drew back, and apparently that's a military metaphor, he withdrew and kept himself separate, as though these Gentile believers actually really were contaminating. They really were unclean. They couldn't be engaged with like they had COVID, you know, keep your distance. <clears throat> and that wasn't consistent with the way that he had seen uh, God's gift of the Spirit to Cornelius and God's three-time repetition, if I have made something unclean, don't you dare call it. I made it clean, don't you dare call it unclean. And thirdly, he was failing to acknowledge the all-sufficiency of Christ for salvation by unwittingly adding the works of the law to the work of the cross. So in short, this is how it sort of crystallized for me when I was uh, preparing this. For Paul, Peter's tactical move was a strategic theological blunder. What he did for tactical reasons for Paul, was actually a strategic blunder. Paul and, uh, Peter and Barnabas had probably been persuaded by the critics from Jerusalem that eating with Gentile believers was sinful. It was sinful because it breached the Torah. And Paul fiercely repudiates this claim, for he says, how can Christ be a servant of sin? If embracing Gentiles as equals stems from what Christ has done, then it cannot be sinful. What is truly sinful, says Paul, is to re-erect these barriers of privilege and status and distinction within the community of faith. For if I build up again the very things that I once tore down, then I demonstrate that I am a transgressor. So you can see what he's doing here. He's saying the sin doesn't lie in breaking down these barriers. The sin lies in re-erecting these barriers. If I re-erect these barriers in light of what's happened, then I am actually sinning against what I know to be true. Failing to treat all believers as equally valued by God and with equal status and worth in the church, irrespective of ethnic or any other distinction, is for Paul truly sinful. That's where the, um, the offence lies. So, in the remainder of the chapter, Paul tries to explain in really compressed language the theological principles behind this way, uh, what led him to sort of have this major standoff uh, with the rock of the church. Uh, and he talks about it in terms of being consistent with the truth of the gospel. This is a phrase that occurs a couple of times in Galatians. And it seems to me there are kind of four sides or four aspects to this truth of the gospel when you think about it at a kind of uh, theoretical or theological level. So here we 
get into real, um, really <laughs> contested territory. But the first, I think the first aspect of, of the truth of the gospel expressed in terms of principles is that we are all only justified in Christ. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is justified not by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, because no one will be justified by works of the law. So to be justified, this verb, to be justified, essentially means to be restored to right relationship, to be considered to be in good standing again, to have the wrongs that have damaged the relationship rectified, put right again. It's a legal metaphor, but the moment you say that, we start thinking of our legal system. Uh, It's more fundamentally a relational metaphor. And the problem we have in English is that the word justified or justification and the word righteousness come from two completely different um, linguistic stocks. But in, in Greek... To be justified is to be is to be made righteous. It's just the verbal form of the noun uh, righteous, righteousness. So it's, it's a relational term, uh, although it, it is a kind of legal metaphor um, as well. But the, the key thing is that Paul insists that it is Christ himself who has rectified Israel's broken relationship with God on behalf of the whole human race. It is Christ who has, 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 has put this relationship right again. Crucially, it has not happened by works of the law. Now, th- this phrase, works of the law, has been a storm centre of, of debate over the last uh, generation or so. But it, I think it's general agreement that this phrase, works of the law, does not just mean moral deeds in general. It's not just good things that you do. It's works of the law. What the the phrase refers to are the requirements of the Torah, the requirements of the law, that serve to mark out the Jews as God's elect people. The things that set them apart from others. Um, And it wasn't just moral deeds, although that, that certainly was part of it, but it was, it was the more visible markers like Sabbath observance and circumcision and purity laws and dietary practices and festivals, those sort of things that the, the, the law of Moses requires and that Jews used as a kind of dis, distinguishing markers of their community. And doing such works as these is not a problem. For Paul, the problem is relying on a law-defined life to deal with the deep-seated problem of human alienation and servitude to sin. It's it's relying on that distinctive lifestyle that they have been given as being essential to deal with this deep-seated human alienation. And Paul this is really clear in the New Chapter of Romans, Paul's argument is 
Well, it hasn't worked for us Jews because sin reigns supreme in our community as well. It hasn't worked for us and it's not going to work for the lawless Gentiles either. So for Paul to champion works of the law is kind of to back the wrong horse because no one will be justified by works of the law. It is Christ who secures our justification. We, verse 17, we are justified in Christ. He restores humanity to its, its, uh, its God-intended state. It's not the law, and it's not any of the works of the law that achieves that. It is Christ who rectifies the human condition. How does anybody else benefit from what Christ had done? Well, this comes to the second sign of our quadrilateral, is that what it is? Four-sided box. Justification is appropriated by faith. He writes, and we have come and and we have come to believe in Christ Jesus so that we might be justified by the faith of Christ or faith in Christ. And not by doing the works of the law, because no one will be justified by works of the law. The benefits of what Christ has achieved, the renewed relationship with God, come to others when they freely choose to entrust themselves to what Christ has accomplished. So he's saying, I trust, I trust, I trust in you. Why trust? I mean, why is faith the issue? I mean, why not, I don't know, think of anything else. Um, why, is, why is it faith? Why is it this quality that Paul sees as, as, as central? I, I guess there are, a couple of, there are a couple of reasons. One is because faith is open to all people, regardless of race or gender or class or ability or nationality or age or anything else. All people can and all people do live by faith. We all do, all the time. It's a universal human capacity, and therefore, to require trust or, 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 or faith from people opens it up to everybody, Gentiles as well as Jews. If it's on the basis of obeying works of the law, then one has to kind of assimilate to, to being a Jew in order to benefit from it. And in Paul's reasoning, that means that God is just the God of the Jews. He says that at the end of Romans 3. God's just the God of the Jews. They're just a tribal deity, if that's what we were talking about. But God is not just God of the Jews. God's the God of all people. And what all people have in common is this capacity to respond in, in trust or in faith. And that leads to the other thing about faith that I think is, is, um, is why Paul makes it so central to the, to the, um, to the gospel. is because... Trust or faith or faithfulness, and really those words all mean the same thing, I think. Uh, trust or, or faith or faithfulness lies at the heart of the intended relationship between humanity and its creator. I mean, this is the story in Genesis uh, 1 to 3. Humans are created to live in a relationship of trusting, enduring dependence on God. It's the kind of original design. That's the blueprint uh, for being human. That's what it means to be human. And if that's what it means to be human, then you can only really find freedom 
by being like that. You know, we're not free to fly like birds because we haven't been made like birds. We've been made as humans, image bearers of God. And so freedom and fulfillment must come from actually fulfilling the, 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 the nature of the relationship for which we were created. But this relationship has been damaged by uh, Adam's primeval act of distrust or unfaithfulness and has been perpetuated by Adam's offspring ever since. And Paul says it's been perpetuated by Adam's offspring in Israel as much as it has by Adam's offspring outside of Israel. Uh, sin is no respecter of ethnic boundaries. But where Adam failed, where Adam was distrustful, where Israel fails to be faithful to its covenant with God, the Messiah has succeeded. Christ has succeeded. He lived this life of perfect faithfulness to God. Uh, and so, as a second Adam, recalibrated, if you like, human nature back to true north back to the, 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 the direction for which it was originally, uh, originally intended. So when Paul says, we are justified through faith in Christ Jesus, that phrase could equally be translated, and um, you can line the commentators up on this, this has again been a real storm centre, but I'm pretty persuaded by those who say that it really should be translated we are justified through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. The, um, you know, the, 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 um, the grammar, the, the way which the word, the, I'm trying to think what it is, a genitive uh, case, you know, it can be translated differently. But I think it makes a lot of sense to me to read it as the faithfulness of Christ. It was his faithfulness to God, even to the point of death, that restored humanity's relationship to God and set us free from this present evil age, which is uh, the phrase that Paul uses at the beginning of Galatians. It's not our human faith that rectifies things. It's Christ's faithfulness that rectifies things. Christ redeems by his faithfulness to God. We receive that redemption through our faith in him. Which leads to the third part of the, of the truth of the gospel. That the work of redemption is accomplished through the cross. So verse 21, For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if justification comes through the law then Christ died for nothing. Christ's willing acceptance of death, even death on a cross, is the supreme testimony to his enduring faithfulness to God. And that is the key event that achieves this re rectification, this redemption, um, of creation. But how does the death of one historical person impact the lives of other different people? Or to bring it down to, um, 
to the issue for Paul, how does the death of Christ change the life of Paul? How does the death of Christ change the life of you or me? Or what is it that gives faith its power? I mean, is this just a mental construct or is there something else more profound involved? Well, Paul's answer is this. That when Christ died on the cross, all humanity died with him. 2 Corinthians 5, he says, For the love of Christ urges us on because we are convinced that one has died for all, therefore all have died. One has died for all, therefore all have died. Christ died as the collective representative of all humanity. Through the incarnation, he identified totally with the broken, sinful human condition of which you and I are a part, of which Paul is a part. What happened to Christ, Paul says, happened to me as well. Just as he participated in my lot, so I have participated in his death. I have been crucified with Christ. It's not like the penal substitution of Christ has been crucified, so I don't need to be crucified. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. When Christ died, he died to the power and the control of sin with the capital S and all its social manifestations, including prejudice and violence. When Christ rose, a new human condition, freed from the powers of the old age, came into existence. So it is no longer I who live, the old I, but Christ who lives in me. It's kind of <laughs> kind of awe-inspiring, really, <clears throat> to try and get your head around this. And really hard to get your head around it. But that's the that's the kind of categories Paul works with. And that brings us then to the fourth uh, feature of the truth of the gospel. The life of faith for Paul is expressed in the a life of love. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So, as a Pharisee, Paul lived his life in utter devotion to the law. He killed people to uphold and defend the law. And he approved of those who killed Jesus to uphold and defend the law. But now, Paul says, I have died to the law in order that I might live for God which is what he thought he was doing beforehand, that I might live for God a life that is totally encompassed by, totally defined by, and utterly enthralled with Christ and Christ alone. And this is the thing about Paul that I just, I just am all, I'm just left stunned by. It's just this absolute conviction that his life is 
encompassed totally by Christ. I mean, there's nothing beyond that. Everything is found in Christ. And the thing that distinguishes this new life in Christ from the previous life of religious devotion, the thing that distinguishes it most is love. A life of love for others. A life that is modelled on and energised by the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I, I just find the personal um, emphasis of that, that verse just, just really moving. The Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. As it says later on in Galatians 5, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. The only thing that counts, the only thing that counts is faith working through love. Faith energised by love. Through love become slaves to one another. Just say that to Jackson. <laughs> it was calling me a slave. Through love become slaves to one another, for the whole law is summed up in a single commandment. You shall love your neighbour as yourself. Paul sees the obligation to a life of self-giving love to be every bit as much part of the truth of the gospel as is justification by faith. The reason why Paul opposed the requirements of circumcision and food laws and Sabbath observance is not because they are things in themselves that are bad or wrong. They are part of God's good law. The reason why he opposed them is because compelling others to observe them is inconsistent with the call to love them in the same way that Christ loved them and that Christ loved us as well. So then, to just finish up, for Paul, <clears throat> the truth of the gospel is essentially double-sided. On the one hand, it is a story of how Christ has acted to liberate humanity from this present evil age and restore it to right relationship with God, justification. Something that is achieved by the faithfulness of Christ on the cross and is received by us by echoing that faithfulness by placing trust in him. So on one hand, it's a story about what Christ has done. On the other hand, it's the obligation to live in the flesh. In other words, live in ordinary, everyday affairs in the world. To live in the flesh in a way that is consistent with Christ's example. A life that is modelled on self-giving love which of necessity, Paul says, denies any human privilege based on race or class or gender or culture or sexuality or any other distinction, which is why theology and ethics or proclamation, if you like, evangelism and social commitment simply cannot be separated because one without the other is less than the truth of the gospel. The gospel calls us, according to Paul, to act consistently. 
literally to walk in a straight line with the way God has acted in Christ, reaching out to all people equally and indiscriminately, irrespective of worth. And Paul, it seems, saw the radical social implications of that more clearly than any other Christian in his day, more clearly than Peter, more clearly even than Barnabas. Paul saw the implications uh, of the gospel for the way that um, the community was to live its life. It's possible that Paul lost the battle in Antioch. He may have just been a minority of one, and the rest were persuaded, and the church was divided. He may have lost that battle, but he kind of won the larger war, I think. <laughs> I mean, he won the law, the the the, the war. If you, sorry about the military metaphor, but he won the war theologically, because everybody now sort of agrees with Paul's language anyway. But the victory often seems pretty tenuous in the church uh, because of the way the distinctions of race and class and gender and wealth and nationality and politics and sexuality, especially, I think, nationality and politics these days. Uh, the way these kinds of um, qualities uh, constantly reassert themselves as crucial determinants of Christian identity and ministry. I uh, read somebody recently talks about how the evangelical um, church in America preaches a Freudian gospel. <laughs> uh, it's, it's all about um, sexuality and gender issues, and that's crucial to Christian identity and ministry. But if we really do follow the message of Galatians, and if we really do feel the passion of Paul, then I think we have to conclude that wherever the gospel is used, to justify violence of any kind or oppression or cultural assimilation or to defend any human status system or any partisan interests, whenever the gospel is used for those purposes, then, Paul says, we nullify the grace of God and Christ died for no purpose. <laughs>